Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Hard to believe it's the end of the year. Even harder to believe it's the end of a decade, huh? We, uh, <clears throat> we've seen such wonderful blessings this year, so many things to rejoice in, but I did want to share with you that, that for me, this has been one of the most challenging years I've ever faced. It's interesting how when blessings come, more responsibilities come, but especially this year has been a time of, I would say, like revelation of my weaknesses, and so... I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Those of you who are parents might relate to this. I remember as a, like a teenager, college student, or whatever, I could sleep all day, nothing woke me up. As soon as I had kids, everything wakes me up. Kind of, are they breathing? Are they healthy? Are they okay? Whatever's all right. And this year has been, for me, a return to that because... There's a part of my brain that is constantly asking, is Lisa okay? Ever since she, she had her surgery and, and went through recovery and stuff, there's this part of me that's just always focused on, is she all right? If she rolls over in bed, I go, are you okay? Are you all right? And uh, do you need something? Whatever. And so I, I have never seen myself, in a sense, have to draw concentration, focus, strength, like I, I have had to this year. And as that's been happening, I've been seeing my own weaknesses. I've been seeing my own shortcomings. And for the last couple of months, I've been praying, and I say, Lord, I want to understand how to be strong in the Lord and in your mighty power. And this doesn't usually happen to me, but I actually had a dream and he unpacked for me the elements of strength. And he took me scripture to scripture. And it just began to make so much sense to me in an area of, of personal development, area of emotional development for me, an area of character development. And since I have the microphone, you're going to go through it too. <laughs> but what I saw was that, that strength spiritual strength, which results in emotional and even physical strength, has these building blocks and these elements that have to be present. So we're going to go through a number of scriptures over the next five weeks together that just talk about how do you become strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And so the first uh, passage we're going to do has four of the elements the, the foundational element is, is obviously faith. Without faith, there is no peace with God. Without faith, there is no access to the things of God. So faith is the foundational element. But from faith comes this peace, which we talked about last week as being an inner calm, an equilibrium, or a sense of poise in the midst of challenge. And then joy. I'm just such a genius, the Lord says, the joy of the Lord is my strength, and I agree with him on that. So, you know, just think about, okay, so it's faith, it's peace, joy, and then the fourth one is hope. You see, 
Hope is the spiritual generator of strength. Hope is the spiritual generator of peace in the midst of trouble. It's the spiritual generator of joy. So I'd like you to, we're going to go through a scripture together, and I'd like you to see these four elements. But I'd like you to say them out loud with me, just, just so I know you're, you're following along with me here. Okay, so faith, faith. Peace, peace, joy, joy. Hope. hope. All right, now I want you to look at your neighbor. Tell them you need, need. faith, faith. Peace, peace, joy, joy. and hope. Some of you like doing that way too much. So the first scripture the Holy Spirit took me to was Romans chapter 5. And I'd like you to read with me these first five verses. Amazing chapter of scripture. But I'd like us just to read these first five verses together. I like it when the church reads God's word out loud. Would you read with me? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we're going to start with this element or the beginning of your strength comes when you have biblical or you have saving faith. Now, biblical faith means that faith cannot make something true that is false. Faith can only embrace what is true. It can't make something true. It embraces it because it is true. Faith is an instrument. It's a means by which you receive something. It becomes real to you. It becomes yours. But this this faith that Paul talks about is, is is an awesome thing that's even more than receiving forgiveness. Receiving forgiveness is a wonderful wonderful thing that your sins are forgiven, that your guilt has been taken away, that your shame has been taken away. But Paul doesn't stop with the idea of forgiveness. He says your faith accesses justification. And, and, and it's more than just forgiveness. It's that you become justified in the court of heaven. You become justified by the judge of the living and the dead. You become justified by God. Now, Luther loved this concept so much that he, he rejoiced and began to get extremely excited when he said, we are both sinner and just at the same time. And there's a, there's a, powerful, there's a powerful emotional strength that comes when you realize that you don't have to fake it. You don't have to put on the religious mask. You don't have to pretend that you're a saint. You don't have to pretend that you're holy. Instead, you can be perfectly honest that you are a sinner because you have a Savior. And because He saves you because you're a sinner, not because you're a saint. And so the idea here is that you get to be radically, wonderfully honest about the brokenness in your life and the sinfulness in your life 
But at the same time, by faith, you get to realize that God has made you righteous, that God through Christ has made you holy, that you are both a sinner and a saint at the same time. So you don't have to fake it with anybody. You don't have to deny the truth of your brokenness. You don't have to deny the reality of your weaknesses because it is not because you are holy that you've been made holy. It's because Christ has put to your account His righteousness. He has taken what you deserved and given you what He deserved. And because of that, you can live this very honest life, this very open, vulnerable life Because nothing that is going on in your life is unknown to God. And it was for that sinfulness. It was for that evil in you. It was for that darkness in you that Christ died. So this term, to be justified, means that God takes you as a sinner and legally declares you righteous. Legally declares you just. You come into a right standing with God. And because you didn't make yourself just, you can't even screw this up. Because God, the righteous judge, has declared you just. He has declared you righteous. And therefore, it is true, and you can believe it. Your faith doesn't make it true. It's true, so your faith can believe it and trust in it and depend on it. It is a legal term. So what we're beginning, I want you to understand, is that faith then, real faith, has this kind of past aspect, has a present aspect, and it has a future aspect. So the past aspect is that you look back on what Jesus did on the cross. You look back on what Jesus did in his resurrection. You look at how he has ascended to heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father. You look back on that and you said. That is what makes me in right standing with God because I believe, because I have received that grace, because I've entered into a right standing with God. And so anything and everything that comes up in your life can be dealt with honestly, can be dealt with with sincerity. It can be dealt with with total vulnerability because it's not going to change your status. See, religion is basically trying to make you into a saint when you're not. It's trying to put on a mask that you're better than you are. It's about the appearance of righteousness when there is no righteousness. This is so good that our God has said you're a sinner, but in Christ you have become a saint. You are broken, but in him you are healed. You are lost, but in him you are found. And it is not your doing. All that's asked of you is that you receive it, that you access it by faith. This becomes the foundation of all your peace. You cannot have peace with God if you have not settled a right standing with God. And once you have peace with God, you don't have to lose it because you didn't gain it. It was given to you. It was never deserved by you. It was never earned by you. It was always a gift. But the thing that I love about this idea of justified is that it is a legal decree. It wasn't made by you. It's a legal decree that was made by God. And and Paul loves this term so much 
that he uses it twice in the first 10 verses here in Romans chapter 5. And he says, you're justified by faith. So you're accessing. Your faith becomes an instrument of receiving the gift. But then he says, but you're justified by his blood. This is a finished work. This is something that has already occurred. It is not occurring. It occurred. You believe in it. You receive it because it's already yours and already been done for you. It can settle the things of your past. It can settle your relationship with God. In some ways, you cannot have peace, joy, or hope if you haven't settled your past. And without settling your past, you're not going to have those building blocks of strength. If you're still asking the question, can God love me? You don't have strength. If you're still asking the question, you know, uh, have I done enough to be worthy of his love? You still don't have strength because you don't have a settled past. So the first step in faith, are you tracking with I'm talking fast. Are you tracking with me in this? The first thing is for you to realize what Luther realized. You are sinner and you are holy. That is an awesome truth. Because you don't have to deny the reality of what you failed in. You don't have to hide what you've not been able to do or what you've done. But you can go to God and say, I am both sinner and I am just. I am sinner and I am holy. I am sinner and I am righteous. And, and because you see it clearly that way, there's no place for boasting. Because you are so evil, he had to die for you. But you are so loved, he chose to die for you. There's no boasting in that, friends. There's boasting in religion. There's comparative justification in religion, but not in grace. In grace, we are all sinners and saints. Are you hearing me? And as wonderful as that is, Paul then goes on in chapter 5 and he says, but not only that. <laughs> he goes, not only are you justified, not only do you have a faith that looks to the past and settles your past and gives you peace with God, but then he goes, not only that, but in addition to how you've begun in Christ, now he says, now these wonders are going to unfold as you live in Christ. But he doesn't say what I think he's going to say at this point. I'm thinking about the blessings that are coming, the favor of God. You know what he starts talking about? And not only that, but you get to suffer. Sometimes I just want to punch Paul in the nose, you know? It's like, please, don't, don't write this stuff. I don't want to suffer. You know what, he, you know what he's basically saying is that when, you, when you're going to live in Christ, it's going to be unavoidable that you're going to be challenged, that you're going to face difficulties. Some places in the Bible, it says it's like going into a furnace. When you go into that furnace, do you know what happens? Only the gold survives. So you have something in you that is more precious than gold. But when you go into the furnace, everything that's not gold is burned up. And so what Paul is saying is that suffering... In the furnace of God's, of God's, you know, refining is both a gift and a test. And it's hard for us sometimes to recognize the gift that it can be. But it also is hard for us to react properly to the test. What happens to many of us is we believe that our suffering is producing 
our reaction. When in reality, the suffering is only revealing. So if you have endurance, it will be revealed in your suffering. If you have character, it will be revealed in your suffering. Nothing that comes in the fiery furnace of the refining of suffering is being produced. It's being revealed. And if it's gold, it's being refined. If it's not gold, it's being burned up. And that's the gift that the furnace brings to us. Now, I love the idea of peace, of being able to encounter a trial and have inner calm and have a sense of equilibrium, not losing, not being, you know, not reacting and overreacting in ways that are, that are, that are un- inappropriate. I love the idea that I have a joy that isn't circumstantially based or not based on people in my life, but I have a joy that comes from heaven. I love these two things, both peace and joy. But what I found is that both peace and joy are generated by the degree of hope that I have. So here's what, here's what I want you to understand about hope, is that hope is basically future faith. It's, it, biblical hope is where you have come to understand what is certain and what is not certain, what is changeable and what is not changeable. See, when you put your hope in what is changeable, then you will be disappointed. If you put your hope in things over which you have no ability to control and you have no right to control, then what will happen is you won't have hope, you'll have fear. And once you have fear, it erodes faith, and fear creates in you a tension of control. Control in the ways of, I've got to manipulate this outcome. I've got, to, I've got to intimidate this person, or I have to withdraw from these people, or I have to in some way dominate this situation. And when you step into fear and you step into control, you've lost both hope, joy, peace, and faith. So there's a present reality of faith that is being challenged by the suffering or the, or the difficulties that you are facing. But the only way to face the present difficulties is to have certainty about the future. And so what happens to many of us is we have hope in very changeable things, in things that we really don't have a right, and we don't really have the ability to control. Many of the things that are precious to us are changeable. Family changes. Whether you like it or not, the children grow up. And they leave on Christmas Day. (laughs) Or they never grow up and they never leave. (laughs) Either way, it feels hopeless. (laughs) Marriage is a changing thing, changeable thing. The expectations, the responsibilities, the blessings, they all change. And if your hope is in changing things, you will be disappointed. Your job, very changeable. Your finances, changeable. Your health. You look at all of these things, there's a common factor. In all of these things, you have neither the ability to control them, nor do you have a right to control them. If you try to control them, you're stepping out of faith, you're stepping out of hope, and you won't have peace, and you won't have joy. You will have to have a lot of power. You will have to have 
usurper power. You'll have to have inauthentic power. And when that happens, even what you think will be the outcome of your control is never the outcome that you want it to be. Are you tracking with me? This And so here's what Paul says. We rejoice in the hope. Again, hope in the Bible is in the certainty of the glory of God. Here is something in every suffering situation that you go through, in every challenge that you meet, is that God's glory will go to work to make what feels like ashes into beauty, what feels like a heaviness into a garland of praise, what feels like mourning in the night, he will turn into dancing. Because the God, the God who has promised you the weight of his glory in every circumstance has also said, I am working all things together for good because you love me and because you're called according to my purposes. So if your hope is that the glory of God will be revealed in this suffering, in other words, you have changed from the changeable to the immutable, to the unchangeable. Now your hope is bigger than your circumstances. It's bigger than the people in your life. It's even bigger than you. Danny read that verse. He can do more than you could ask, think, or imagine. If your hope is in that, then what you're seeing right now is just the beginning of the process. It's not the end of the process. The question, though, is how easy is it, it, is it to hope in the immutable? Most of us don't have capacity for that. So the Spirit has to use the trials, the difficulties, even the suffering of your life to develop capacity for hope in the immutable, for hope in the unchangeable. Because you and I mostly have put our hope in the things we feel like we have a right or ability to control, even though we don't. And so the suffering becomes a gift, and, and this flies in the face of the... Everybody in society around us, everybody in society is suffering as well. Everybody's going through challenges. But the modern view is that this is all there is. This life is it. There is no afterlife. There is nothing beyond this. And what many of us don't realize is that we're hearing in our heads all the time, suffering is random. Suffering is accidental. Because you see, if you're an accident, then everything in your life is an accident. The question is, have you come to the place of faith where you realize that you are God's workmanship? You are God's masterpiece. You are God's poem that he's even created good works for you to do. And he wants you to walk in those works which take even the suffering of your life into glory. Will you be transformed or will you continue to live in this kind of negativity about suffering that and sacrifice even that we live in in our society. Well, Paul is very clear about what the Christian's view of suffering and how it fits with hope. Because what God is doing is he is he's really destroying anything that's not hope in the immutable, hope in the eternal, hope in the certain. And he's and 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 he's burning it up in your life. And so part of it is to begin to say with Paul, I will learn how to have joy in my sufferings. But it's, it's really important that you get that the Bible is very intentional in terms of language because Paul's not offering stoicism. 
He's not offering some self-harming, seeking out pain, seeking out suffering and conflict in your life. Rather, he's trying to get you to understand how to have joy that is not circumstantially based because the joy isn't sourced by the circumstance. The joy has a source beyond the circumstance. And so here's what he says, if we can put it in a different way. He says, it's not rejoice in spite of your circumstances. I see people all the time who adopt a basically stoic attitude towards their pain. And they say things like this. Well, it's not personal. Friends, if it's not personal, what is it? <laughs> I know. I mean, do you understand what you're saying when you say it's not personal? You're saying that didn't hurt when it really did hurt. That didn't offend me when it really did offend you. Do you understand? Basically, what you're saying with the Stoics is you're saying, don't let pain ever get to you. Don't let it affect you. Don't let anybody see you sweat. Act like you're not hurt even when you are hurt. And so the idea is, and many Christians have accepted this idea, that I'm somehow immune to suffering. The problem is, friends, that is not biblical at all. Poor Job was not a Stoic. He was an anti-Stoic. When he heard about the loss of everything, he didn't go, hey, I'm not going to let him see that this is making me sweat. And he didn't go, hey, this isn't personal, so I'm going to be okay. You know what he did? He ripped his clothes. He threw himself on the ground. He wailed. He, he cried. He was so emotionally honest. He was uh, completely vulnerable. And you know what God said about it? In all this, Job did not sin. You know what matters? I, I know this might seem simplistic, but it really doesn't matter what society says is appropriate. It really doesn't matter what other people tell you how you ought to feel. They are not God. When Job lost it, when Job was hurting, God said that was not sin. And if God said it wasn't sin, then it's the opposite of sin, which means it's righteous. It's the right thing. But how many churches would Job been thrown out of because he overreacted? He mourned too long. He grieved too long. I don't know if you've ever been around this, but most Christians are horrible when you're grieving. They come up to help you, but they hurt you. You know, it's like you should, you're kind of making us all feel uncomfortable right now. You need to get over this. You know, I, I, and, and, so many say things like in those moments, they go, okay, God is good, and they're waiting for you to come back. God is good all the time. And instead, I just want to punch him in the nose. Because like, that's not helping me right now. Because what you're doing is you're saying, I'm supposed to rejoice in spite of my sufferings as if I wasn't suffering. So you're delegitimizing my real feelings. I mean, how many churches would Job been thrown out of? And how many of you would have thrown him out? It's, it's a fascinating thing in the church how uncomfortable we are with negative emotions. I had an experience. I was trying to uh, revitalize an inner city church in Atlanta. And uh, one of the deacons in the church, I could tell something was wrong. And uh, again, I, God doesn't often speak to me in dreams, but... That night, the Lord said he's been having an affair with his co-worker. 
And he was coming in with his wife for counseling, and the Lord said, tell him about his affair because he's keeping it secret. So I, I started off the meeting, and I said, look, I, I don't really want to say this, but I feel like the Lord has told me to say this to you. You're having an affair with your coworker." And he turned so many shades of white that uh, it was, it, he was embarrassed, he was ashamed, and he goes, yes, I've been having this affair for seven years. And his wife goes, I knew it! She said it just like that, too. I'm not telling you. And, and, and right there, it was so powerful because he repented. And she forgave him. And they started building their marriage back because she had felt like a crazy lady because he kept saying it wasn't true, it wasn't true, but it was true. And so he, he looked at me and he said, look, I, I've been a deacon in this church and uh, I've been lying. I want to get up in front of the church because I think I've given access to Satan in this church. And I want to confess and I want to tell the people and I want to ask forgiveness. So I said, okay, and it was a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and he got up, and all the people told him, sit down, please, we don't want to hear about this. We're uncomfortable with this, they said. We're uncomfortable. He, he was weeping and wanting to confess his sin, and, and he wanted to repent, and he wanted to say, look, I've let this access of the enemy into the church. And they're like, no, we're very, we're very uncomfortable with this. Please don't tell us anymore. Don't, don't make this known. We closed that church not long after that. You see, you can't defend a lie with the truth. And Jesus says you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you can't be honest, then you can't be free. And so denial and acting as if something's not real is a coping mechanism, yes, but it's not a healing mechanism. It's not something that sets you free. It puts you in greater and greater bondage so that the pain that you're denying is stored up somewhere and it comes rushing out at the wrong people. Usually the people who hurt you never get your pain. It's the people who love you who actually get your pain. And so the, the, the way Paul is explaining it here is you don't fake it till you make it and you don't, you don't act like you're not in pain and you don't say things like it's not personal. Of course it's personal. And you're not a child. And Listen, no one gets to numbness through happiness. Oh, I'm so happy I'm numb. I've never heard that. I'm in so much pain, I just don't want to feel anymore. I've heard a lot. You see, the enemy wants to keep you from these elements of strength because when he takes one element away from you, he gets access to that place. So instead of strength, you're building, uh, you're building on lies. To deny your pain is to leave your pain unprocessed. Now, in a physiological way, the way your brain works, it remembers everything. It keeps every memory, and the memory is the vortex where the pain stays. It's why many times you have to go back into past things with people who love you and with the Holy Spirit directing you so Christ can be the healer not only of your present pain but of your past pain. And because you are already justified, you don't have to be afraid of anything from your past. 
You can face every single one of them because Jesus will go back to every memory and he will bear the burden of that pain in everything that you do. But when you deny that it's there, you deny your Savior access. Well, what that does, particularly if you keep living in spite of your pain, is that it cuts you off from your real self. It makes it to where what you're presenting is an imposter. What you're presenting is a hardened view of yourself. No one can get in. There are many of you, even in here today, that the opening for people to love you is very small. And since it's such a small opening, they never catch it. They never know exactly how to love you. I'll give you a silly example. When I first came here about See, almost 16 years ago, there was a Bible study, the ladies' Bible study during the day, and they would, they would make coffee for all the ladies, and then they would bring the last cup of coffee to me, the pastor. And I was like, I'm the pastor. Why don't I get the first cup? <laughs> and, I, and I started to realize, I started to realize in the midst of that, I'm like, it's so thoughtful of them to even think of me. And you know, they always fixed it just the way I liked it. It was always perfect. It was always hot. It was always good. But I was missing the love that was being shown because I was focused on the wrong thing. And once I took my focus off the wrong thing, I'm like, man, they're loving me. And so every sip of coffee became a blessing, became a receiving but you see, if, you're, if that opening is so small and everybody has to get it just right for you, even though they love you, you're not feeling the love. And what happens there, friends, is not that you're not loved. It's that the problem is you. The hardness of heart, the lack of compassion, the false strength. I won't let anybody hurt me. That's not Christianity, friends. That's false. And Christianity would never be false in that way. Well, not only is it Paul not saying in spite of your sufferings, he also says he's not saying rejoice for your sufferings. I know so many Christians that will tell you, just give, you know, give God praise for this cancer. No, I get, you give God praise for God and you hate the cancer. It's a curse. You give God praise for God, but you can stand up against every hurt that you have. He isn't there saying, oh, you know, you're so Christian when you act like you're rejoicing for the suffering. It's, it's, let's be a little philosophical for a minute. Maybe you're like Descartes and you say, I suffered, therefore I am. Not many philosophers here, I guess. Or some of us, really and truly, I've met many of us like this. I've got problems, therefore I am deep and complicated. Or there's some of us, my suffering makes me special. So please don't take away my suffering, because who would I be without my suffering? Do you understand? I put those out there, and they're actually funnier than you're reacting to them. <laughs> I put those out there to see how sick our thinking is. That almost like I only have worth if it's really bad. I'm only really happy if I'm really miserable. I grew up in a family like that. I love to talk about I, 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 I think in my family I have a Ph.D. in complaining. Because yeah, it was almost like you, you weren't alive if you couldn't find things to complain about, if you couldn't find things to grumble about. 
I've actually seen, if you really want to make friends at ShopRite, just get in line and start complaining. <laughs> They'll all join you, especially if you complain about the right thing, you know, which might be ShopRite. I'm not sure, but, uh, but look at what Paul says. Here's how Paul rejoices in his suffering. Notice this. We are afflicted. He didn't say we're not afflicted. He said we are afflicted in every way, but not perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Do you understand? What he's saying there is the circumstances are real, but our hope is not in the changeable. Our hope is in the unchangeable. He can see the glory of God even in the depravity of this world. Though he's experiencing affliction, he's not going to be crushed. Though he doesn't understand it all, he's not going to get hopeless. And he's not going to take his own life. He may be being persecuted, but he knows he's not alone. God has said, I will never forsake you. I'll never leave you. He feels struck down, yes, but he says, but I, no one can destroy me. Come on, this is pretty good. Am I having to do all the work here? Here's the thing. When you think about our Lord Jesus Christ, he was completely in tune with the Father. And yet Jesus grieved, wept over Lazarus. He experienced great loss. Why is that, do you think? Well, here's the thing. When you're not self-absorbed, then you become totally in touch with the pain and suffering of everyone else around you. But when you're totally absorbed, all you can feel is your own pain. And so all you can think of is how people need to take care of you. So then you have no capacity to take care of anybody else. Or even if you do take care of them, you're doing it for yourself. And so Jesus, who was not self-absorbed, he could feel the pain and the suffering of everybody that he met. You see, because he was the light, he knew exactly how dark the darkness was. Is this making sense to you? I remember the first time I really experienced this. I was down in Columbia, and uh, I, I was in uh, a, a time in Cali where, where the drug cartels were going down. And I went to this church, and they asked me to preach, and so I preached. And afterwards, I, I, I began to pray, but I had preached in English with a translator, and I, I didn't feel totally satisfied because I felt like the Lord had something more for me. So I went down to pray, and 300 people came forward for prayer. And they wanted individual prayer. And suddenly Spanish started coming to me, things I'd never studied, things I'd never known. And I could understand everything they were saying, and I could say anything I needed to say. Sometimes the pain that, that whatever their sickness was, I would feel it in my body, I would pray. And when it was gone from me, it was gone from them. And I ended up, it took about five hours, but I prayed for every single person individually. But as I was praying for them, because I wasn't thinking about me or my Spanish, or I wasn't thinking about how they'd think about me, all I could feel was the compassion of Jesus for every single one of these people. And then I could feel their pain and Jesus' compassion meet them. And we saw so many instantaneous miracles we saw so many people get filled with the Holy Spirit. We saw numerous people get saved. 
And all of it in this one night, and it was exactly what I'm talking about. It was taking all of, the, all of my own self-absorption was kind of gone for a season. And all I could feel was his love for them, his compassion for them. And I could feel their pain, and I could feel Jesus meeting that. And I got to be right in the middle of it. And I'll tell you what I felt. Unworthy. I just, I was so beautiful. I, I would do 10 or 15 people of prayer and then I'd just weep for a while because just this sense of how much he loved them, how much he grieved over their pain, and how much he wanted to meet their pain. It was one of the most exciting and powerful times I've ever had in my life. But it was exactly this. You see, if you keep saying, Okay, I'm excited for my suffering. No, Jesus is excited to heal your suffering. Jesus is excited to carry your suffering. Do you understand that the cross at its essence is found in Isaiah 53 where he says, Surely he carried our sorrows. Why are you carrying your sorrows when he could be carrying them for you? So... What I'm saying to you then is biblical hope, this idea of hope in the certainty, hope in the immutable, unchangeable things of God becomes a, 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 a way, the way, to see the reality around us. And only as your focus is on Christ can He give you that kind of transcendent hope. See, Jesus in your heart means you have the possibility of that hope, but faith is the way that you access it. And as you go through that fiery trial, in a sense, that's the way that he's refining all the false sources of hope. It doesn't mean that you don't want things. It doesn't mean that you don't care about things. But you begin to realize that those are not the source of your hope. You could lose your job, but you haven't lost your hope. Your marriage could fall apart, but your hope is still in the immutable glory of God. And, and your hope is that his glory is going to transform even the rotten things into beauty. There's not a thread of your life that he's not weaving together into glory. He's not going to let you waste your sorrows. But it has to be that you're allowing and you're willing to see where you are lacking in terms of endurance. Because many of us, once we suffer, we want to run from it. We want to stop it. Stop it now, Lord. And make it quit. Or we want to, in some way, distract ourselves with things that do not produce character, but reveal we don't have character. And instead of greater capacity for hope, many of us shut down any possibility of an ever-deepening well of hope. So, one of the illustrations that helped me to understand this was done by a pastor. And he said, if you think about it, a thermostat, a heater, is only activated when there's cold air. You only get the fire going and the, the fire only stays on as long as it's confronting the cold air. And the more cold air, the longer the thermostat stays on the hotter the heat becomes because you've got, you've got to equalize and you've got to neutralize the cold. So there has to be greater heat and there has to be longer heat. 
So what's happening in many of our lives is that when we begin to suffer, it's like winter is coming, cold air is coming in. And for that cold air to be neutralized, hope has to be called upon. And that hope has to be strong enough and, and online long enough and has to heat up enough that it, it encounters the cold and brings an equilibrium to the atmosphere. But the lack of hope, even when you're calling on, oh, I, I don't want to freeze, I don't want to be cold, the lack of hope makes it to where there's no power to encounter the cold and bring a nice, warm atmosphere. See, what God is trying to do in your life, because thermostats are automatic. Hope is not automatic. Hope is intentional. The only person who decides what you hope in is you. And, and see, this is where your heart, this is where your heart's strength is revealed. When the cold comes, do you run? When the cold comes, do you say, God, you're not good. This is never going to work out. I'm never going to see the end of this. Or do you call on that hope thermostat and heat it up because hope becomes a, a heater for you? And do you leave it on as endurance in your life? And do you persevere until the cold is neutralized? Or do you quit long before? Because you see, if the cold of the suffering is going to be encountered, it's going to have to stay on and it's going to have to heat up. And what God is doing as a gift to you is he's showing you where your hope is deficit. He's showing you where your character is broken. He's showing you where your, your spiritual muscles, which are called endurance or perseverance, are lacking. And he's not doing it to embarrass you. He's doing it so you'll have capacity. So that when you turn on that heater, the heat comes on. And you turn it on and it stays on. And it stays on until the cold air is diminished and it's a nice, warm atmosphere. What else is peace but inner calm and an equilibrium? What else is joy except that you know that your hope is sufficient to encounter whatever trial you're going through? Because you know when you turn it on, it gets hot and you know it'll stay on until the whole room has changed. Are you hearing me? So the issue... The issue today is really, where is your hope? Is it in the changeable things of family, of health, of your finances, the changeable things of your job, your career, your relationships? Or is your hope in something that cannot change and will not change? Because if it's, if it's in something that will not change, when you call for it, the heat turns on and the heat stays on. And it stays just as hot as it needs to until the room becomes comfortable. Will you stand with me? Here's what I, I want to ask you to do something. It took me a number of times going through this to even be able to communicate this to you. I'm certain of this. It may not be for everybody in here. I'm certain the Lord has taken me through this to share it with you prophetically. I don't think it's just a word for me. Now, I'm fine if this is just my therapy. You paid for it, so uh, I'm good with that. But I don't think it is. 
I think what he's been taking me through, he's been taking me through to give it to you. And I believe it is an invitation to strength. Think about what Paul says as challenges comes. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Having done everything to stand, stand. That takes strength. There's a tide that comes against you. There's a current that comes against you. And you'll either stand or you'll be swept away. And what I'm saying is, foundationally, it's faith. You settle this issue of peace with God. That your past is a settled issue because of the cross of Jesus Christ. But instead of being shocked that you're being refined, instead, you submit to the refining fire. You're not... (laughs) You're not rejoicing for the sufferings and you're not rejoicing in spite of the sufferings. You're rejoicing in the sufferings because your joy doesn't come from the suffering. Your joy comes from heaven. Your joy comes from the Holy Spirit in your heart and the joy of Jesus in you. But I'm pretty convinced that the spiritual generator for everything you're going through, I know for me, it's the spiritual generator of everything I'm going through is that I have had hope in changeable things and they disappointed me and it weakened me. But when I switch my hope, which I have the ability to do, you have the ability to do because it's your heart. As I switch my hope to the glory of God, to the immutable things of God, to the love of God, to the peace of God in my heart, to all those things that are certain, then the uncertain things don't derail me. When the uncertainty comes, I call on the thermostat of hope. And the heat comes and it stays on until the cold is neutralized. I'm calling on you today to take that control center called your heart and to make a commitment to hope. Hope in the glory of God that not a single thing that you're going through is wasted. He's not gonna waste your sorrows. There's beauty for ashes. There's joy in the morning. There's dancing that follows the morning. Will you let him develop that capacity now for hope? Even if in some ways you're, see I, I dive in with both feet. That's just my personality. Kind of figure out the cost later sometimes. Some of you are not like me. You don't dive in. So here's what I would say to you. If you would say to him today, Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. There's a lot of you that don't dive in, huh? You want to try it again? I'm willing to be made willing. I know it might be hard to believe, but this is a gift as well as a test. The refiner's fire. You do not want to live with anything that's not gold. If your hope is in something transient, if your hope is in something that doesn't have permanence, it will be burned up in the fire. But if your hope is in the immutable, the fire only makes it more beautiful. Lord, we seal what you're doing and the work that you're doing in our lives. I. I've seen this year that I do not have the strength that I thought I had. I am longing for the strength of the Lord and his mighty power in my life in a fresh way. And as these elements of faith, peace, joy, and hope are so essential for this, 
I'm asking now that each of us will experience a greater, more, more deep well digging capacity for this spiritual generator called hope. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today.